We are going to be considering Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 this morning. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord add His blessing to the preaching of it on this Lord's day. Well, we have now come to the second half of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, wherein he applies the truths that he has established in the first half of his epistle. The word therefore clues us into this transition. And when Paul says therefore, he means, now here is how you should live, given all that I have taught you. And so we must see that doctrine is always practical, friends. Truth must always lead to application. It is important, therefore, that we not forget the truths that Paul established in the first half of his letter. What he is about to say here in this application portion of his letter is directly linked to the truths that were presented in the doctrinal portion. The application flows naturally out of the doctrine. So what did Paul teach us? And I will not review in detail the teaching of Paul found in Ephesians 1-3, through for we have recently considered these passages. But in brief, Paul taught that Christ has accomplished the Father's plan for the redemption of His elect. Paul established the supremacy of Christ over all things. He taught that in Christ we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the high heavenly places. Both Jew and Gentile are reconciled to God through Him. Though we were all by nature children of wrath, in Christ we have been adopted as sons. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and, and an eternal inheritance. Though the Jews were especially blessed and used by God for ages, and though for a time the Gentiles were alienated from God and without hope in the world, now that the Christ has come, Jew and Gentile have together been brought near to God. By God's grace, both Jews and Gentiles are saved through faith in Christ. They are together spiritual stones in God's Spirit-filled temple, being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. We are to remember that Paul's prayer for us, as he, con- as he concluded that doctrinal portion of his epistle, is that we might have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is Ephesians three eighteen and 19. And so truly, The theme of the first half of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is unity in God's inaugurated new creation, as Dr. Baugh has recognized. We have been taught that in Christ we together are one, uh, being reconciled to God as one family, uh, being built together into one temple. And so with this in mind, it is no wonder that Paul then exhorts the believer to pursue unity within the church and holiness within the whole of life. If it is true that in Christ we are stones in God's new creation temple, then it follows that we must pursue unity within Christ's church, and we also must pursue holiness. 
God's temple cannot be divided, and God's temple must also be kept pure. And so we will see that much of the application that Paul presents in Ephesians chapters 4 through 6 is really centered upon these themes of, of unity and holy living. I want for you to notice three things in our text for today. One, Paul exhorts here the believers to walk worthy. Two, he then urges us to bear with one another in love. And three, he implores us to eagerly maintain unity within Christ's church. And all of this application flows from the truth that in Christ we have been reconciled to God the Father who is himself one. So first of all, let us consider the command to walk worthy which is found in verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner of for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, Paul says. Notice that Paul again reverse, refers to himself as a prisoner of the Lord, just as he did back in 3.1. So perhaps this is to remind the Ephesians that to follow Christ involves suffering. Uh, walking with Christ in this world requires humility. Humility being a theme that he will soon develop for us. He then urges or pleads with the believer to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. As you know, walking is often used in the scriptures as a metaphor for the Christian life. It is a very appropriate metaphor for the Christian life is in fact a journey. We are called in the scriptures sojourners. We are to live carefully in this world. We are to walk with constancy. Consider briefly Paul's use of the word, or of the metaphor, walk, in Ephesians alone. Way back in Ephesians 2.2, Paul reminded the Ephesians that before they believed upon Christ, they were dead in the trespasses and sins in which they once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But in 2.10, Paul reminded the Christians that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so everyone living in this world walks. All have a way of life. All are moving in some direction, being moved by something, having their sights set on something. This is true not only for the Christian, but for those who are in their sins as well. And Paul is eager to show us that in Christ, our walk is to be different. Whereas we once walked in sin and in death following the course of this world, now that we have been recreated in Christ, we are to walk in the good works that the Father has prepared for us beforehand. Here in 4.1, the word appears again where Paul exhorts us simply to walk worthy. In 4.17, he will command us saying, You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And in 5.1-2, we find this commandment, Therefore, Christians, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In Ephesians 5.8, Paul says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And lastly, in 5.15-16 through 16, we read, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. And so I might ask you this simple question, friends. How is your walk? Do you walk with a Christ-like gait? Are you 
walking in a heavenly direction? Are you walking with God-centered purpose, being moved by the Spirit of God, with an appetite for the eternal things, the good things of God? Here in 4.1, Paul begins to make application by simply urging the believer to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. Worthy here means fitting or proper. Uh, The idea is this. Consider what God has called you out of and consider what He has called you to and then walk in a way that corresponds to or fits that calling. Again, I will leave it to you to review what has been said in Ephesians 1 through 3, chapters 1 through 3 in detail about your calling in Christ. It is a marvelous calling. In brief, I will simply say that you have been called out of death and darkness to be adopted as children of God. Now walk as children of God. Uh, That is Paul's point. Walk as children of God, for this is certainly right. This is fitting. This is proper. Same thing stated negatively is this. It is a most unworthy and improper thing for someone who bears the name of Christ to walk like a child of the evil one. And so, brothers and sisters, you are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This command to walk worthy has very broad and far-reaching implications. By it, Paul certainly means that we are to live holy and obedient lives. He means that we are to walk in the light and not in darkness. But notice how Paul specifies what a worthy walk looks like in the following verses. In particular, walking worthy in Christ means walking with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That is Ephesians 4.2. This in Paul's mind is what a worthy walk looks like. The Christian is to be humble and gentle, patient. We are to bear with one another in love. I would like for you to consider this before we go any further. Though it is not explicitly stated in this text, it is certainly implied. Walking worthy in Christ means that we walk with Christ alongside other believers. That is to say, in the church and not as isolated individuals. Paul's words here in Ephesians 4 wouldn't make any sense at all if this were not so. The first thing that he says about walking worthy in Christ is that we be humble, gentle, and patient with one another, bearing with one another in love. And so we see this emphasis upon walking amongst one another in a particular way, having a particular way about us in our relationship with one another. Stated differently and negatively, if you profess faith in Christ but refuse to join yourself to a local church, you are not walking in a worthy manner according to the Scriptures. But this should not surprise you at all if you have been paying attention to the teaching of Paul in this epistle. He has taught that those who have faith in Christ have been reconciled to one God, are adopted into one family, and are individual stones in one spirit-filled heavenly temple. And so we must realize this, that God did not send the Christ to redeem isolated individuals, but to create a new humanity in Him. Now, this does not do away with the individualistic aspects of our redemption in Christ. 
Indeed, it is true, individuals were chosen by God in eternity past. The sins of individuals were atoned for by Christ. Individuals are reconciled to God and adopted as sons by faith. The names of individuals are indeed written in the book of life. All of this is true. But never should we minimize these truths concerning the redemption, not just of the individual, but of a body, of a family, of a kingdom, of a new humanity. This corporate or collective aspect of our redemption must not be neglected. For this is also true, that in Christ God is forming a new humanity. He is creating a new humanity that will one day fill His new creation. And so friends, here is a thing that we must recognize Being a member of this new creation family of God or of this new humanity is not a future hope only, but it is a present reality for those who have faith in the risen Christ. Those who have faith are adopted into this family now. They are citizens of this new creation now. They are members, citizens in Christ's kingdom now. And we might ask, well, where is this new creation family of God visibly manifest on earth today? Where do we see it? And the answer is this. It is made visible in the local church. When the local church assembles for worship on the Lord's day, we are given a small glimpse of God's adopted new creation family. Now, we must be careful here. I am not saying that the local church is the new creation family of God. I'm not equating the two, the visible church, with the kingdom of God. For you know full well that the local church is not so pure. Indeed, there will always be goats amongst the sheep, weeds amongst the wheat, and false believers amongst the true. This is how things will be until the Lord returns to make all things new. The church will remain imperfect and impure. But I am saying this, God's new humanity is manifest in the local church whenever she assembles as pure as she may as impure as she may be and this is why paul is so concerned to urge us to bear with one another in love within the church there will be a mixture of true believers and false as i have just said but even amongst the true believers there will be immaturity there will be foolish behavior there will even be sin And Paul is here saying that we must be prepared and committed to bearing with one another. To bear with is to endure difficulty. To bear with is to patiently suffer hardship. And notice that Paul commands us to bear with one another within the church. And so what does this say about the local church then? Does this statement not say that there will be trouble and difficulty within the local church? Indeed, it does. Paul was not surprised by the trouble that he saw within the local church, and this should not surprise us at all either. And so I wonder, have you read the scriptures, friends? Have you read of the trouble that Israel had with sin? Have you read of the difficulties that arose amongst Christ's own disciples as he walked with them on this earth? Have you read of the troubles experienced by the first churches that existed even in the age of the apostles? Even those apostles could not bring about a pure church, a church without difficulty. To the contrary, the early church was plagued with 
many difficulties, doctrinal perversion, sin within the congregation, difficult matters to handle. It is terribly naive to assume that the church will be pure and without controversy. It is naive to assume that Christians will not struggle continually with sin as they sojourn in this world. Corruptions remain within us, friends. You know this. And therefore, it is a terrible excuse to say, I love Jesus, but I will not join the church because of the hypocrites that exist within it, as so many say today. Now, I will grant that there are some churches that have so degenerated in doctrine and in life that they can no longer be called churches of Christ, but are in fact synagogues of Satan. I am not saying that true believers should join themselves to congregations like this, but I am saying that even the best of churches must prepare to bear with one another in love. Even in the best of churches, Christians must prepare to do this thing that Paul has commanded. The church in Ephesus was known to be a very strong church. But even they needed to hear this exhortation from Paul to bear with one another in love. I will point out that Peter said something similar to his audience as he wrote to the churches. He said to them, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. I do love that phrase. Love covers a multitude of sins. What does that mean? Well, Notice that Peter does not say that love ignores sin. God himself did not and does not ignore our sin, but he does cover it. And so too, never should we ignore sin. We should not ignore our own sins nor the sins of others, but we should be eager to cover the sins of others. This means that we should never exploit the sins of others. We should never fixate upon them or hold on to them with unforgiveness, but instead we should bear with one another in love and be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace as we forgive one another in Christ Jesus. This, of course, will require that we all walk in humility and gentleness and that we have patience, as Paul says. Again, Ephesians 4, 1 through 2, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So what does this look like practically? What does it look like to bear with one another in love? Well, first I will tell you what it does not mean. It cannot mean that sin is tolerated or ignored within Christ's church. To ignore sin, to let it go unaddressed, would be to disobey the many other passages that call the church to address sin within her midst. There will be times when believers will need to confront one another. And there will be times when the eldership of a church will need to take the lead in, in discipline. As Paul himself wrote to Timothy, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. That is 1 Timothy 5.20. And to Titus he said, Give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. That is Titus 1.9. And again to Titus, he said, Concerning those who persist in sin, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. That is Titus 1.13. But friends, even sharp rebuke 
is to be delivered in humility and gentleness with patience. These two principles uh, communicated by Paul uh, concerning the need for humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another, and the idea that we are to confront sin, our own sin, and the sins of others when appropriate. Uh, They do not contradict one another, but they comply with one another. We are to do both of these things continuously. We are to bear with one another in love, and we are to be concerned to even confront one another when necessary. In fact, I would argue that to deliver a firm rebuke to a sinning brother or sister is the height of love. I suppose there are some who enjoy confrontation, but surely these are in the minority. Most, I have found, dread confrontation. In my opinion, confrontation is terribly draining. And yet, if we love one another, we will confront one another concerning unrepentant sin. And I will say this, any fool can fly off the handle being driven by anger. Any fool could also run away from confrontation. Um, These are both uh, worldly and fleshly responses uh, to, to confrontation, to difficulty. But the one who is mature in Christ will engage even in this act of confrontation with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with the one who is in sin, in love. Bearing with one another in love also means that we are to be patient with one another's immaturity. It means that we are to take the long view as we remember that sanctification is a process for all of us. I think it is important that we remember that great commission that Christ gave to His disciples, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And I will draw your attention to that little phrase, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. When someone is converted, when they are baptized and received into the church, this process of teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded has only just begun. That is a long process. It is a process that requires us to take the long view and to engage within it, with it with patience, with persistence. Sometimes this process of sanctification is a long and arduous one. And we should never forget this, brothers and sisters. Bearing with one another also means that we will put up with one another's corks. Here I am referring not to sin, but to the differences in personalities and temperaments that we will undoubtedly find within Christ's church. The church is not a society of friends formed around common interests. It is not a society formed around compatible personalities or shared attraction. Instead, our bond is is wrought by the Spirit and rooted in Christ. And God has called a diversity of people to Himself. He has called rich and poor, male and female, black and white, introvert and extrovert, timid and bold. I could go on and on. The point is this, we should be prepared to bear with one another. We should be prepared to bear with what we consider to be the corks of one another and to celebrate the diversity within Christ's body, and to remember that just maybe we are the quirky one. 
Uh, we always have to keep that in mind, don't we? Bearing with one another also means that we will respect the opinions of others. Some things are clearly revealed in the Scriptures. Other things are revealed less clearly. But some things are a matter of opinion, falling into the realm of wisdom. And brothers and sisters, we must learn to clearly differentiate between things that are essential and non-essential, things that are a matter of God's law and are a matter of wisdom. And we should never quarrel over opinions. We must learn to humbly bear with one another in Christ, even where differences of opinion exist. And why should we bear with one another like this? Well, I'm sure you could think of many reasons, but in particular, we must bear with one another because we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is what Paul says in verse 3. He commands us to walk worthy, to bear with one another, being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I have only a few brief observations to make about this verse. One, Notice that this unity that Paul speaks of is not something that we are called to create, but it is something that we are to maintain. It is something that we are to cause to continue, to retain, to keep. This unity is not created by us. It is not something that we bring about. Rather, it already exists if we are in Christ Jesus. But this unity is ours to maintain. We are to to maintain it. Two, it is the Spirit of God who creates this unity, which is also called the bond of peace. Again, Paul says that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here is what binds us together, our shared peace with God. You are at peace with God, and I am at peace with God if we are in Christ Jesus, we together being adopted as sons. And how was that peace secured? Well, it was accomplished by Christ in His life, death, burial, and resurrection. And it is applied to us by the Spirit through His effectual calling, through regeneration, through sealing. And for this reason, Paul refers to our unity with one another as the unity of the Spirit. It is a unity that is brought about by the agency of the Spirit. It is, in fact, a bond of peace. You and I, being together at peace with God, have this unity of the Spirit shared with one another. Three, Paul says that we are to be eager to maintain this unity. And by this, Paul means that we are to be zealous to maintain it. It is something that we are to pursue with intense effort. Maintaining unity within the local church and even between churches is something that we are to be passionate about. It is something we are to be zealous for. It is something that we are, in fact, to work very hard at as Christians. And I will tell you this, perhaps you know it already, maintaining unity in Christ's church is hard work, friends. Again, it is very easy to be offended and to run off as a result. It is also easy to be offended and to fly off the handle as a result. Again, I will say both are fleshly responses to offense within Christ's church But the spiritual response to sin and offense within Christ's church is to go to your brother or your sister, to speak with them humbly and gently, to listen carefully to them, 
to try to understand their perspective, to encourage them, to exhort and rebuke them if necessary, and to be persistent and patient in all of this. Time must be invested. A lot of energy must be invested. Invested. All of these things must be covered carefully with prayer. We must constantly examine our own hearts as this process unfolds. We must examine our own motives and our actions. We must prepare to speak. And when we do finally speak to our brother or sister, we must labor to control the tongue. Brothers and sisters, I am telling you that this requires work. Maintaining unity within Christ's church takes effort. And if we are not eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, we will never make this investment. But here Paul commands us to be eager for this very thing. There is a lot at stake, friends. We are here talking about maintaining unity within the church of Christ, which I have already said is an earthly manifestation of the new creation family of God. Think about that for a moment. We have been called to maintain unity in something so precious. The earthly manifestation of the new creation family of God. We must keep it together, friends. All division in this world is terrible. But it is especially terrible when it is found within Christ's church. For our unity is wrought by the Spirit. It is mediated by Christ. It is rooted in God Himself who is one. And that is how Paul concludes this passage by reminding us of the source of our union and therefore of the depth of it. Look with me briefly at verses 4 through 6 where Paul says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What a beautiful passage this is. Why should we be eager to maintain our unity in Christ? I think Paul's answer here is because of its great depth and because of its eternal significance. I think you know this to be true from experience. Uh, Division between people is tragic in proportion to the depth of the bond that is fractured. What I mean by that is that it is sad when conflict drives acquaintances apart. But it is especially tragic When division separates close friends or those of family relation. But here I think that Paul is trying to get us to see. He is demonstrating that the most tragic kind of division is division within Christ's church. Given the depth of the bond. Here Paul reminds us that there is only one body. A reference no doubt to the church which is elsewhere called the body of Christ. There is only one body, Paul says. There is only one body that we are all a part of. Furthermore, he says that there is one Spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, by whom you are sealed if you have faith in Christ. So the question is, should Christ be divided? Should His body be divided? Should the Spirit be divided? And the answer is certainly not, for they are one. Paul also mentions our shared hope. You and I together have this in common. We hope in Christ, His promises, and in the new heavens and earth that He has secured. And so what a bond we have. He then says that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Why are you in the church to begin with? Is it not because you have confessed that Jesus is Lord? 
You placed your faith in Him and expressed these things through the waters of baptism. Is there more than one Lord within the church? If there were, then I suppose we would be content with division within the church. You'd belong to this Lord and and you to that one over there. But no, there is only one Lord within the church. He is our Lord. Is there more than one faith? We, We are to say no, there is only one faith. There is one body of doctrine that we have all received and confessed to be true. We all have a shared trust in the risen Christ. And is there more than one baptism? Paul says, no, there is only one. Baptism into water is how each one of us have made that public profession, signifying that our sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ, that we have died to the old self and have been raised to walk in newness of life. If there were many faiths and many baptisms, then I suppose that divisions in Christ's church would be acceptable. But there is only one body, spirit and hope. There is only one Lord, faith and baptism. And Paul saves the best for last, saying that there is only one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And here is the deepest source of our union with one another. We together have been reconciled to God the Father who himself is one, he being undivided. When Paul says that there is one God and Father of all, the all is in reference to all who have been reconciled to him and adopted as sons. The context of Ephesians makes this clear. All who are united to Christ by faith share this in common. We have God as Father. And God our Father is over all, through all, and in all. It is this God, the one true God, who Himself is simple and undivided, that we have been reconciled to. What a deep union we have, brothers and sisters. What a wonderful family we are a part of. It is the family of God. So then if I were to ask you the question, what is the unity that you have with your brothers and sisters in Christ rooted in? What would you say? What would you say? Truth be told, there would be many acceptable answers. You would be right to say that you are bound together because you are members of the same body and sealed by the same Spirit. It would also be right for you to emphasize that you have the same Lord, confess the same faith, have been baptized with the same baptism. All of these things are true. They're very substantial. But nothing is deeper than this. Through faith in Christ and by the Spirit, We have all been reconciled to God the Father, the one true God, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. O great God in heaven, I come to you, and on behalf of my brothers and sisters in Christ, I say, Our Father who art in heaven. What a marvelous thing this is to be reconciled to you, Father, individually, for we know that by nature we were alienated from you in our sin. But what a grand truth that has been presented to us here in the pages of Holy Scripture. It is not only individuals who have been reconciled to you, but a body, a family, a kingdom, a new humanity in Christ. Help us to see this, Lord. If we are not already, make us eager to maintain unity within Christ's church. May we see how wonderfully deep our bond is, being all together united to Christ by faith and reconciled to you.
gracious Father. Help us in these things, O Lord. Help us to bear with one another in love. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.